Welcome to Fire Headlines, where we discuss the hottest fire news to hit within the last two weeks. I'm your host, Anana Hankey, and today I am joined by the panel, Chief Bob Horton, Chief Jeff Buchanan, and we have special guest Daniel Heenan, retired from the ATF and Clark County in Nevada. Jeff, do you want to say a little bit more about our guest? I would love to say just a few words more about Dan the Man Heenan. This guy knows his stuff. He was a 30-year veteran, special agent in charge of ATF, and then Fire Chief Greg Castle lured him, enticed him, dragged him into Clark County Fire, where he really, really reset the organization, put it on the map from a fire investigation standpoint, really has been teaching across the country, internationally, and what a great asset for Clark County locally, and we're we're just psyched to have you, Dan. You certainly are an expert, and we're glad to have you on the show. Thank you, Jeff. Our topic today is, you guessed it, how does the fire service determine the cause of a fire? We pulled this topic from an article covering a fire that started at a $90 million apartment complex construction site in southwest Las Vegas, and that fire is still under investigation. A team has been brought in to assist with the effort to determine how the fire got started, including several fire investigation agencies, as well as a canine investigator named Countess, or County for short, who can detect around 60 different types of flammable liquids. Officials say that they have a very good idea of where the origin of the fire was, but the investigation itself remains inconclusive at this time. We received some excellent listener questions about our fire investigations, Um, but first, I would really love, Dan, for you to tell us about what a fire investigation is and how it actually works. Could you shed some light on the process? Sure. Uh, Most public fire departments have a fire investigation group, uh, either they call it an arson group or fire investigation division, whatever their nomenclature is. Uh, There's also a group of older fire investigators normally that work for private insurance companies. Uh, So there's really two different fronts that happen. Uh, In this case, when you're talking public sector, uh, the fire investigation team will normally be called out during suppression operations. So while the fire is still being fought and while all the fire crews are still on the fire ground, the fire investigators will arrive on scene. Uh, They check in with incident command. To make sure the scene is safe from their perspective, because they're going to be doing a slightly different mission than suppression. And then they start um, examining the scene. One of the key components when we're examining the scene is to get uh, eyewitness statements. And some of the best eyewitness uh, uh, people writing eyewitness testimony are the actual firefighters that fought the fire. Uh, the battalion chief, when he or she arrives, They're going to have a vantage point and see where the fire is, how it's moving, how wind is affecting it, how the building construction itself is affecting it. Uh, We want to talk to the fire captain of the first in engine. We want to talk to the fire crews. We want to talk to the engineer who normally stays out with the apparatus. Everybody in fire suppression is going to have a slightly different perspective of what's happening at that fire scene. So we want to gather as much of that data as quickly as possible before people start talking and when people talk, they kind of start assuming somebody else's uh, point of view, and I make it my point of view. So the sooner we can talk to these people about what they actually saw, the better. 
then the actual scene examination begins. And obviously that has to happen after the fire is completely put out and we don't have any health safety issues anymore. Uh, what happens is, um, if you'll remember your maybe seventh or eighth grade science classes, the first law of thermodynamics is that energy is never created or destroyed. So it's just transferred. So what we look at is how is energy transferred when something's burning? So what happens is as something burns, it becomes hotter and then it releases its energy into the atmosphere. Uh, that energy is then absorbed by other materials. If it's absorbed by wood, for instance, it chars. If it's absorbed by plastic, it melts. If it's absorbed by gypsum, it discolors and uh, dehydrates. So there's about 16 to 20 different materials that we fully and uh, comprehend what happens when it absorbs energy. And in a fire investigation world, we call those fire effects. So we study fire effects. We do a lot of research on fire effects. We do a lot of test burns. So we fully understand that when energy is imparted onto a material, how does that react? Uh, then by looking at the different materials, looking at what happened to those materials, we can start identifying how much energy was absorbed. And the more energy that's absorbed potentially means the longer durationally that fire was burning, which might mean that's the origin of the fire. And we start marrying that up uh, with fire patterns, fire effects, corroborate that with the witness statements. If we're fortunate enough to have video, we start getting video. Uh, we could do a whole bunch of other analytical research topics that, that people have done. We use that data. And then we try to determine specifically where that fire started. That's always the first thing. Where did the fire start? If we can figure that out, then in that relatively small confined area, then we start looking at now, why did the fire start? What caused that fire? So when we're talking about investigating a fire, we use the term origin and cause. So first we determine the origin of the fire, and then we determine what caused that fire, what what heat producing element caused that fire at that specific location. And that could be a myriad of things. It can be an accidental electrical outlet. It could be a careless discard of a cigarette, which is again, an accident. It could be child playing with cigarettes, which is an accident, but it also could be somebody intentionally set a fire. If somebody intentionally set a fire, that's where the fire investigation goes in a full swing. Cause now we have to identify that a crime has happened. And then how do we identify the who? Who caused this fire? So a lot of times we wear two different hats. The first is determine where that fire started and how. And if we determine it to be an accident, we're kind of done. Um, then the private fire investigators will come in uh, working for the insurance company. But if we determine it to be a crime, then we fully investigate the crime of arson and take it all the way through the court systems. So that's kind of in a nutshell, broadly, how, how we start doing our business. I didn't know very much at all about the fire investigation process, and I think it wasn't until I read this article I realized that there was kind of an air of mystery around how this was actually done, at least, you know, from an outside perspective. And I think this is a great way to get into our first listener question, which is, you have this trail of evidence, essentially, that you've outlined that leads you back to the likely place where the fire started because it has been burning the longest and you see how it has affected these other materials and you trace it back to the origin. In that case, why are so many fires that are investigated classified as undetermined? Well, that's a really good question. And it's a misconception that a lot of people have. 
a lot of people will have uh, the idea that if we say undetermined, we don't know where that fire started or how it started. But what undetermined really means is a lot of times we don't know the exact cause of the fire. Uh, 80% of the time, I would say we know the origin of the fire. But in the legal world, we have to be able to say what was the first fuel ignited and how did that spread to the second fuel and what caused that first fuel ignited. If we have any question as to any of those uh, hypotheses, then we have to say undetermined. So theoretically, I could say the fire started in this ash can, uh, this garbage can. I know it started in a garbage can, but through my interview with the occupants, they all smoke. Now, of course, everybody says I don't smoke inside the house, uh, even though there's ashtrays inside the house and cigarettes throughout the house. Uh, they're saying I didn't do that. So now I have to determine, are they willfully and intentionally lying to me because they caused this fire uh, and set the trash can on fire? Or could a discarded cigarette have caused this fire? So I have to look at the timeline. I have to look at the material that was burning. And if I can't conclusively say it was cigarettes, then I have to go undetermined. So even though I've ruled out electricity, I've ruled out lightning, I've ruled out child's play, I've ruled out probably 80 things. Um, if I'm left with two valid hypotheses that are still competing against each other, then I have to say it's undetermined. I'm really glad whoever asked that question asked that question because when you hear an undetermined, you just think, oh, they have no idea what happened. And and, and every once in a while that happens. I mean, you get a trailer that burns in the middle of the desert, nobody calls you for a week, you're probably not going to be able to figure that out because it burned to the ground. But for the most part, especially in the Las Vegas Valley, where the fire units are so responsive so quickly and they do interior attacks so, so often, we very rarely don't know where the fire started, but we may have a contradiction as to how. You know, Dan, it was, it's really interesting I because I had spent most of my career in Las Vegas and being in an urban metro department, there's such volume that we could have a dedicated team that specifically worked on fire investigations. And then I moved to a rural community in Oregon and the cause and origin investigations there are done by deputy fire marshals, fire inspectors uh, at the position. We call them deputy fire marshals. And different like in Las Vegas, they were as you were a sworn law enforcement officer who had the authority to arrest. In Oregon, there was no arrest. It, truly, they were there to to execute the uh, legislative expectation to identify cause and origin. And I used to drive drive the team nuts because I'd show up on on a particular incident and act like I knew what I was doing. And you know, like you know, kind of walk in, point, and says, "Of course, it started right there." And you know, why are we why are we doing all this? And it would be a good a good laugh. And our fire marshal. It really educated me on the, these levels of degrees of certainty and how sure we really need we, we need to be. And he gave me the whole class on the different probabilities between it po possibly or probably and ruling out competent ignition sources. And it's there's so much complication. And this question about uh, from a policy perspective that we wrestle with in the fire service is because it, it seems to me, and I'm just curious your thoughts on this, we have sort of two different lenses by which to look at this cause and origin or, or cause issue through. One is the the burden of legal proof, where you would need to be able to go to court and and, and demonstrate uh, how sure you need to be, and I, and hopefully you'll you'll sort of talk through that. But then there's this different perspective we look at from a policy approach, where like what you just described is it's documented uncertain because we have to meet a legal standard in your written documentation. Yet the rest of us are like, but 
but is, if you're 80% confident, it was this, can we address policy with that level of confidence interval? I'm just curious if you had a thought between what I, I see it as, as, as this paradox between this legal standard of, of, of cause or, or level of certainty versus one more likely than not, this was the cause and we should treat it as that as such. Because from a policy perspective, when we think about what is causing fires in America, uh, you know, we, we kind of land on we're unsure. And, and I think that's because there's this, this tension here. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Yes, uh, absolutely. So I have two thoughts on that because you're right. I mean, in the vast majority of times, we kind of know what caused the fire, but we're just not 100% sure. If you're not 100% sure, uh, we don't want to guess. And, and here's why. If I, as a fire investigator, say that's an arson, then I have now stated unequivocally that a crime has been committed. If I go arrest somebody for that crime, arson is such a subtle criminal uh, charge that there's a lot, not a lot of defense attorneys that understand how to defend that. So I'm about to take someone's civil liberties away. So if I go and arrest somebody for the charge of arson, they're definitely going to be arrested. They're going to go through a trial. And even if they're found innocent at the end, they've still had to hire an attorney. They've had their reputation dismantled. They may have lost their job. So anytime somebody says it's an incendiary, and when I say incendiary it means intentionally set fire, it has ramifications and it has major ramifications for the person you accuse of that fire. So First of all, morally, you should be absolutely sure that it's an incendiary fire before you make any arrest or, or anything down the road. Uh, the second part of that is that fire investigations, the very first step to fire prevention. We can't prevent fires if we don't understand how and where they started. So if we don't understand how something starts, we can't ever prevent it. But appliances and the such uh, are, are big, big business. So if I were to say a Mr. Coffee Pot started a fire, Mr. Coffee doesn't want to hear that because now they're going to be in litigation for decades about Mr. Coffee. They might have to do recalls. They're going to have to do more testing. And because we're so litigious, they're going to be sued and they're going to be sued by multiple people and they're going to get clash action suits against anybody that ever had a Mr. Coffee pot. So we really have to be fair to both sides. I mean, we if we know what caused the fire, and I would say in the vast majority, we do. Undetermined is a valid um, conclusion. But I would argue that it's only a conclusion about a third of the time and probably less. Um, most fires are accidental in this country, but we have to be judicious when we say it's an accidental fire because we're so litigious and it could cost a corporation. A co corporation could go out of business because of something like that. I mean, look at the Ford Pinto. Obviously, Ford didn't go out of business, but when they proved that Ford knew about the failure mechanisms of the Pinto and how, how it was catching fire, I mean, they lost billions of dollars. I'm sure their CEO lost his job. All these other people, the engineers lost their job. And Ford was sued civilly uh, massively. So they have to look at all these things. So when you say a fire began X way, whatever that X way is, you better be sure you're saying you're saying it right. I think you should be commended for your thoughtfulness and your incredible conscientiousness as you take on the mantle of an arson investigator and how careful you were in pursuing, as you stated, taking away someone's civil liberty in the light of, of trying to 
to find out who did uh, some of these acts that you investigated. So I, I kind of wanted to set the stage there. And it really helps guide me to, to the question that I think uh, our audience and, and listeners could, could benefit from. And you've had this special experience, no pun intended, you're a special agent for the ATF investigating arsons. And then you became an assistant, assistant fire chief for Clark County Fire Department and an expert on a different side. When you look at that article and you hear the wide range of training that and perspectives, like from Bob's department, you, you, you know, we talked about Las Vegas Fire and Rescue. They got bomb techs that are also investigators. There's a wide range of expertise and training. How could you describe to a company officer that exists somewhere, let's just pretend in the West Coast, and help guide him or her through the scenario where I need to call in federal resources. I need today's version of Dan Heenan to come in because this fire is outside of my scope and I need help. How Can you help like the audience, like I said, company officers and other fire departments, help them come to that decision point? I, I think that the more comfortable you are with what you can and can't do, so the more the more truthful you are with yourself, the better you're going to be. Uh, I've always found in my experience, it's the younger company officer. It's the newer company officer that doesn't want to ask for help because he or she's being constantly looked at like, uh, should they be a, should they be a captain? Should, what's the crew thinking of them? And they want to show that they have uh, knowledge and they, and, and they're right. So they don't do it. It's the company officer that's been there for years that seems to always say, hey, I need help. I'm willing to say I need help. It's it's human nature uh, to ask for help, I, I would say. And we all have different skill levels. Um, as a federal agent, as a certified fire investigator with ATF, uh, in order to become a CFI, a certified fire investigator, you have to go to two years uh, solely dedicated to uh, getting um, understanding fire. Uh, we do... We do 30-day classes, then we do a two-week class, then we do another two-week class, then we do another two-week class. You have to attend Oklahoma State University and you get a master's certificate in in, fi in forensic fire science. Uh, you have to do 100 fires. You have to read 32 books and you have to write essays and, and treatises on those books. You have to take courses through the National Fire Academy. Uh, there's so many things you have to do. So when you finally become a certified fire investigator in ATF, you are undoubtedly, I believe, the most well-educated fire investigator in the world. And I say that I've, I've been fortunate enough to teach in Scotland Yard. I've taught in London Fire Brigade and Bangkok and Budapest and we're all over the, all over the world. What ATF agents lack, though, is experience. So as an ATF agent, I'm only going to go to the big, big, big fires. And I'm going to use my understanding of thermodynamics and fluid dynamics and I'm going to figure out where the fire started. But I might only do uh, 15 fires a year. Whereas a local investigator uh, who maybe doesn't have the training that I do because the department can't afford it, or maybe they can afford it, but they don't have somebody that can fill in for me because I'm the only other investigator. Uh, they may go to 500 fires a year. And experience is very, very, very important in what we do. Education and experience coupled together makes you very, very good at what you do. A newer investigator who had very little experience isn't going to be very good. 
A newer investigator who has very little training isn't going to be very good. But when we can marry those two things up, uh, we can do that. So if a company officer is willing to ask for help and, and say, okay, this might be beyond my scope, let me call in a feds, then they'll come in. If you look at the fire that, that instigated this conversation in Clark County, one of the proudest things I am of the Las Vegas Valley in a whole is if you looked at who worked that fire scene, it was everybody from the Clark County Fire Department, uh, investigatives, including their reserve officers. Las Vegas Fire sent people over. Henderson Fire sent people over. The state fire marshal sent two investigators over. And then ATS sent five investigators over. So that's how it should be. Everybody marries up and everybody works together. And my strength might be your weakness and your strength is my weakness. So when we can work together as a team, we can achieve so much more. If a company officer can recognize that, it's not saying ATF can figure it out and we can't, but maybe ATF has a different perspective and they can join in with that local investigator and they can combine their experience and knowledge and come up with a valid hypothesis to what happened, which is which is the whole key to what we're trying to do at the end of the day. That is such good advice. And that's definitely a theme that I think we've discussed in this podcast too, is like the more minds and eyes, you know, who have experience or training that we can get on an issue, the better off we're all going to be and the more effective we are going to be as far as finding a solution. I do want to get to one other listener question that we have, which is how do you balance providing information to the public um, or even elected officials during an investigation without compromising the investigation itself? Unfortunately, I've had tons of experience in this. Um, one of my roles when I was with ATF is I was the um, I was on the national response team for 20 years. So we traveled throughout the whole United States and the world to large scale fires where, uh, like Bob was saying, maybe up in Oregon, they had a big fire and they don't have the, a dedicated uh, fire investigation unit. So they call in the national response team. So that's a free group of people that traveled throughout the United States at no cost to the local entity. Uh, they bring in 25 people, they bring in uh, electrical engineers, forensic engineers, fire protection engineers, chemists, canines, and then 10 interviewers and 10 fire investigators. And they come in and just marry up with the state and local. So when they're working with that crew, it's really vital at the beginning stages that we keep information as close to the breast as possible. Uh, that doesn't mean we don't trust the politicians, we don't trust the, the mayor, we don't trust the county commissioner, whoever. But the way I talk to people when I'm doing it is, at the end of the day, if we determine this fire is incendiary, hopefully we're going to arrest somebody for this fire. And that person is entitled in this country to a fair trial. And a fair trial means that he or she is given all the information we've gained and in corroboration with their attorneys, they can figure out their best defense. What's not fair is if we try this in the media and, pub and court of public opinion. So every time we let something loose and slip out, everybody thinks, um, that might be detrimental to the case, and it might be, but in the long range, it might be very detrimental to the accused. And the accused has to be able to garner and protect themselves in, in, our, in our world. They have to be able to make sure they can provide a good defense for themselves. We provide a defense for every person, regardless of how heinous their crime is alleged to be. So if we start giving information to the uh, media, 
uh, if we start giving information to uh, elected officials, unfortunately, in this country, it's going to be leaked. I mean, there's nothing off the record with the media. Uh, a politician might have a friend who a friend through nothing nefarious tells somebody who tells somebody who tells somebody. And all of a sudden the story's changed and information's leaked out about the investigation. So uh, it's a real fine line we have to walk through uh, because politicians are very engaged in what happened. I mean, you know, if you're a county commissioner and that's your area, you want to know what causes fire. You want to prevent it from happening again. They, they, they mean well, but they're not law enforcement. So it, it's a very thin tightrope we have to walk when we do that. Dan, I appreciate your time coming on the show and explaining this investigations to us and to our listeners uh it's it's very complex it's it's hard physical work it's hard intellectual work uh it's very focused intentional deliberate this particular catalyst article uh was this you know massive construction project that you know turns into rubble and i mean and that is hours and days and weeks of sort of uh mundane sifting through ashes to find uh, little bits and shreds of evidence. It's it's hard work. Uh, I appreciate the work you do. Mad respect uh, to your health in your retirement here and to our investigators that are listening to this. Protect those lungs. Uh, that's some nasty stuff you're, you're, you're sifting through. And Dan, I'm sure you've seen your share of throughout your decades uh, of, of evolution and our understanding of wellness to protect our investigators um, as well. So I'm glad we have some more resources around. Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm just really, really grateful for uh, for you making time to share this with us today. You the man, Dan. Thank you. You betcha. My pleasure. I agree. I feel like some of the mystery has definitely been dispelled for me. So I appreciate that. And thank you, of course, to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you have questions for the panel, please reach out to us at fireheadlines at WFCA.com and let us know what's on your mind. And we'll see you back here next week for more Fire Headlines. Mm-hmm.